I'm delighted to introduce today's speaker, uh, Kendall Taylor, who's PhD, is a cultural historian who has taught at the George Washington University, American University, and the State University of New York. She served as head of the National Exhibitions Program at the Library of Congress, academic director of American University's Washington Semester Program in Art and Architecture, and also vice president for planning, research, and institutional advancement at Friends World College. So she's definitely been busy besides writing and researching. She's also a Fulbright Scholar and winner of numerous awards. Taylor is the author of critically acclaimed biography of the Fitzgeralds, Sometimes Madness is Wisdom. Dr. Taylor's new book is titled The Gatsby Affair, Scott Zelda and the Betrayal That Shaped an American Classic. Despite their love, both Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald engaged in flirtations that threatened to tear the couple apart. None had more profound impact on the two and on Scott's writing than that liaison between Zelda and French avatar Edward Jozon. Uh, Publishers Weekly called Dr. Taylor's book a colorful portrait of a stormy chapter in the Fitzgerald's life and, and its far-reaching consequences. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Taylor to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you all for coming. I'm delighted to be in this spectacularly beautiful building. It's my first time here at the Athenaeum, but I can assure you it will not be my last time. This is one of the most beautiful spaces in which I have ever been, so I'm thrilled to be here. Just let me know that you can hear me in the back. Am I speaking clearly enough, loudly enough? Okay. So my remarks this evening will take approximately 35, 40 minutes, timed to the moment, and I'll be showing slides as I speak. And the illustrations are from the book. I hope some of you will purchase the book. I'll be happy to sign it for you. And uh, let me put my first slide up. Okay, so what you're seeing here is an image from Zelda Fitzgerald's scrapbook on the left entitled To the French Riviera and a photograph of Edouard Jozon as he looked in 1924. So you know the title of my book is The Gatsby Affair, Zelda Scott and the Betrayal that Shaped an American Classic. So my thesis is that were it not for this affair between Zelda Fitzgerald and Edouard Jozan in July of 1924 in southern France, The Great Gatsby would be an entirely different book. Now, you can imagine with a thesis like that, critics go crazy. So when you read the reviews of this book, you have to be, as an author, prepared to take the pushback because there's Definitely a lot of pushback on this book, which is just what I wanted. So, life, as you know, has its defining moments, pivotal events that change people forever. And Zelda Fitzgerald had three. A sexual assault in Montgomery, Alabama, when she was 15. 
her marriage to F. Scott Fitzgerald, and a brief affair with the French aviator Edouard Josin. Although Josin has always interested Fitzgerald scholars, there has been little agreement about his impact on their lives. And in an otherwise well-researched case history, he has remained a mystery. By the time Nancy Milford interviewed Josanne for her 1967 book, Zelda, A Biography, he could not or would not recall details of their relationship. And the only other interview he gave three years later to Zelda's Montgomery friend, Sarah Mayfield, for her book, Exiles in Paradise, provided little new information. While Mayfield had the advantage of being Zelda's confidant, Josanne remained circumspect in his answers and shared only the scantiest of details. The Frenchman remained a shadowy figure until I heard from his daughter, Martine, who had read my earlier biography on the Fitzgeralds, never separate from the heart, and wanted to share information about her father. Quote, this is the letter she writes to me. Of all the books I have read so far about the Fitzgerald saga, she wrote, this is the one which gives a true insight into the complexity of Zelda's personality, her intelligence, and most of all, an insight about her alleged mental illness. As I read your book, it made me understand how Zelda could have fascinated my father. Her, her beauty, surely, because my dad always had an eye for beautiful women and had an incredible charm because of his good looks. But I also think that what captured his attention was not only the great intelligence of Zelda, but also her absence of conformism, her appetite for life, and really her tendency to live dangerously, a trait my father possessed also, and which always put him in all sorts of trouble. The daring qualities of Zelda must have fascinated him, and he must have been amused, entertained, and ready to play. Zelda met Edward Josan in 1924 while he was a flight instructor at Frigis Airfield near the Fitzgerald's Villa on the French Riviera. They're shown here in a car in the summer of 1922. Fitzgerald's driving, Zelda's next to him, the French nanny is sitting behind with their only child, Scotty. Southern France seemed the ideal setting for Scott to finish writing The Great Gatsby. After arriving that June, he established a strict work schedule and forbade interruptions. Zelda accommodated by going to the beach, where after a swim in the Mediterranean, she would practice her French with some naval pilots from the nearby base. Jezanne was the handsomest of the group, and to him, she was instantly attracted. The two were soon seen together, strolling through the marketplace and drinking aperitif at, at seaside bistros. When Gerald and Sarah Murphy saw them at the beach, they suspected an affair, but Fitzgerald seemed oblivious to what was happening and later would say, I liked Josanne, 
and was glad he was willing to pass the hours with Zelda. It gave me time to write. It never occurred to me that the friendship could turn into an affair, end quote. Given Zelda's previous history with men, this seems very hard to believe. This is Zelda and Scott on the steps of Villa Marie in Valescure, just north of San Rafael, shown in 1924, and Josanne at his ancestral home in Nîmes. Five weeks into the affair, Zelda confessed that she loved the Frenchman and asked Scott for a divorce. He was dumbstruck. There had been many other dalliances on both sides, but this was different. Offering no excuses or apologies, Zelda was prepared to leave her family for Josanne. That was unfathomable to Fitzgerald, who never ceased agonizing over her betrayal or punishing her for it. He demanded they come before him and profess their love. But Josanne was unwilling to jeopardize his military career and promptly left. Although he cared about Zelda and was sorry to cause her pain, he considered their liaison a summer romance without obligations, that she hardly knew any French and that he barely spoke English contributed to Zelda's misinterpretation of his intentions, but she was also blinded by passion and more attracted physically to Josanne than to any man previously caught up in something entirely unfamiliar. To a degree, the affair was also a creation of Zelda and Scott's imaginations. Fitzgerald encouraged it to generate a love triangle that would infuse the great Gatsby with emotional tension. And Zelda was testing her appeal on a new conquest. None of this was lost on the Frenchman, who later observed, quote, they both had a need of drama. They made it up, and perhaps they were victims of their own unsettled and a little unhealthy imaginations, end quote. That Zelda loved the Frenchman seems apparent, but how could a five-week affair become such a tipping point in their relationship? Partially because the emotional upheaval Zelda experienced after the affair's wrenching conclusion was magnified by something else, a traumatic memory of the brutal side of passion. It had remained dormant until resurrected by Josanne's rejection and magnified her response to his sudden departure. Trauma often generates psychoses, and in this instant, calamitous forces got released, a Greek tragedy French style, triggering profound depression that culminated in Zelda's first suicide attempt. Like women today, Zelda had remained silent 
about this early sexual encounter in her teenage years, embarrassed by its circumstances, and partially feeling responsible for them. And by the time she questioned how much a heart can hold, she had ample opportunity to experience its pain. Old wounds also opened for Scott. His first love, Geneva King, had also rejected him for a naval pilot. And once again, he was being vanquished by a more powerful suitor. Unable to undo Zelda's infidelity, he assumed ownership of it and incorporated the betrayal into stories and novels, exploiting in fiction what he could not control in life. With authorial agency, he could now wield power over circumstances and have characters make different choices and alter the outcome. For some writers, the separation between personal and literary life becomes indistinguishable. And that was the case for Zelda and Scott, who continually rewrote their own personal histories. Scott's search for material in every detail of life, and much of his fiction stemmed from only a few powerful experiences expressed in different guises. Quote, we have two or three great and moving experiences in our lives, he wrote. So great and moving that it doesn't seem at the time that anyone else has been so caught up and pounded and dazzled in just that way ever before. And we tell our two or three stories each time in a new disguise, maybe 10 times, maybe 100 times, as long as people will listen. The Josanne Affair became that one singular event for the Fitzgeralds, a decisive and determining experience continually revisited. It played a pivotal role in Zelda Fitzgerald's two novels, and but for it, The Great Gatsby would be more about lost illusions than adultery and betrayal. And Jay Gatsby, initially based on Edward Josanne, a completely different character. Zelda was brought up to be protected by men. By the way, this, the, I wanted to show this to you a little earlier. This on the left is uh, Peyton Mathis and John Sellers on the right. Those are the two individuals who sexually molested Zelda at the age of, 30, of 15. And in the book, I have a whole area of discussion about that that hasn't been talked about before. That is a street map of Valisker, which is just north of San Rafael on the French Riviera. Those are two vintage 1924 postcards from San Rafael. It's wonderful when you do research on these sorts of things. You go there and you hunt in the antique stores and you, you buy old postcards and take photographs of places. It's part of the joy of being a photographer. So I'll leave this up because he's going to be coming up in a moment. Zelda was brought up to be protected by men and lacked the resources to guard herself from those she charmed. What she really wanted 
was a man with the strength and idealism of her father, but someone with whom she could find emotional fulfillment. Fitzgerald knew from the get-go he was not that person. Quote, all our lives, he said, since the day of our engagement, we have spent hunting for some man that Zelda would consider strong enough to lean on. I am not that man, end quote. She had long fantasized about such an individual and recognized him immediately in Edward Chauzin whose heroic mindset recalled for her a generation of courageous Southerners who had fought for the Confederacy. Named for a heroine in a romantic novel, Zelda grew up with dreamy notions about love, but after her sexual initiation through assault, she dispensed with sentimentality along with moral principles and gave little consideration to what others thought. That she was being adulterous with Josanne never crossed her mind. And what began as a harmless interlude set into motion a series of tectonic consequences that would become the turning point in her life. To memorialize her betrayal, Scott wrote in his notebook, quote, that September 1924, I knew something had happened that could never be repaired, end quote. His Midwestern Puritanism and Catholic upbringing considered a woman's adultery a mortal sin and grievous injustice to the spouse punishable by the highest severity. In the catechism of the church, it not only broke the seventh commandment, but destabilized the institution of marriage and shattered the contract upon which it was based. Although twice in his ledger, Scott remarks on his own role in the affair pushing her towards Josanne, seeing what excitement it could generate. He later would place the entire blame on her, accusing Zelda of becoming involved with Josanne to sabotage his writing. He never forgave her, and she accepted the consequences, considering it one of two actions that had sealed her fate, the first being her marriage. Unable to see her way out of the chaos she had created, in the spring of 1929, she suffered her first psychic breakdown. Her symptoms were straight out of the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual of Mental Disorders, that indispensable handbook for categorizing mental illness. When she appeared for her initial psychological evaluation, her thinking was scattered, she was consumed by anxiety, could not eat or sleep, was experiencing hallucinations, and had just attempted suicide with an overdose of sleeping pills. The Swiss psychiatrist, Eugene Bueller, met with her for three hours. 
before presenting his diagnosis of schizophrenia to Oscar Forel, the director of Prangins, a Swiss sanitarium near Lake Geneva. Bueller had coined the term schizophrenia only 10 years earlier, but it quickly became the most common diagnosis on admission papers. It was so widely employed that by 1930, almost anyone could find themselves institutionalized under that rubric. What hysteria had been to the 19th century, schizophrenia became to the 20th. Psychiatrists believed that women were more susceptible to the condition based on their observation that many of their patients were sad and confused females suffering from what they termed love sickness. Generally, they were brought to sanitariums by husbands, fathers, or brothers as was the case for Zelda's Montgomery friend, Sarah Mayfield, and Lucia Joyce, who also was evaluated by Bueller, diagnosed as schizophrenic, and also taken to Prangin's clinic, arriving just two years after Zelda left. She also suffered heartbreak, falling in love and being rejected by James Joyce's disciple, Samuel Beckett, then spurned a second time by the American artist, Alexander Calder. Although Carl Jung treated her briefly, he considered Lucia's case too complicated and connected her neuroses with her father's, characterizing them as two individuals heading for the bottom of the river at various speeds. Adolf Mayer, a colleague of Jung's, made a similar conclusion about the Fitzgeralds, saying theirs was a folie à deux, or mutual madness, and that Scott was as much in need of treatment as Zelda. But that was 1929 and not 2018, when women routinely found themselves incarcerated in mental institutions for becoming embarrassments to their families by being too sexual or becoming, as men deemed it, hysterical. Don't get hysterical. So hysterical now is really defined as schizophrenia, that they're just mutually inclusive. When the Fitzgeralds arrived in Paris during the spring of 1924, Gerald and Sarah Murphy were among the first people they met and they were delighted to accept an invitation to visit them on the Riviera. A realtor found them a lovely home called the Villa Marie, which was nestled on a hillside just outside Valascure, two kilometers above San Rafael on the seaside. Although introduced to French during prep school and Princeton, Fitzgerald could barely understand it, and he was never very interested in learning the language. By contrast, during their first week at Valscure, Zelda bought some French novels and with the aid of a French-English dictionary began working her way through them. She was particularly intrigued by that summer's bestseller, a book called Le Bal du Comte de Orgal. On the Murphy's Little Beach, she became immersed in the novel's scandalous love triangle. The menage a trois struck a chord and provided a blueprint 
for what would soon follow. It was all there, the motive for the affair, the husband's permitting it to happen, and the wife's remorse. More powerful than Scott's craving for alcohol that summer was the determination to finish his novel. Convinced that seminal fluids contain substances enhancing creativity, he told Zelda there could be no sexual contact, but abstinence was furthermost from her mind. In a letter to her Minnesota friend, Sandra Coleman, she mockingly alluded to Scott's sexual withdrawal, saying, quote, Scott has started a new novel and retired into strict seclusion and celibacy. He's horribly intent on it and has built up a beautiful legend around himself, end quote. To occupy herself, she routinely drove down to the beach to swim, afterwards stopping at the Café de la Flotte to practice her French with the naval pilots Bobby Crioyer, a veteran of Verdun, Robert Montan, shown here, older than the rest, who had fought in the War of the Rift and was fluent in Arabic, and Jacques Bilando, recently awarded his flight wings and very attractive, and the most appealing of them all, as I mentioned earlier, Edouard Josan. So here you have a picture of Josan shown on at the far right, filled with fellow officers and uh, postcard showing the hydrogen, hydrogen, hydroplane that Josan flew over San Rafael. Josan recalled Zelda's loveliness during those days, quote, describing her as a shining beauty a creature who overflowed with activity, radiant with desire to take from life every chance her charm, youth, and intelligence provided so abundantly. All the men fell a little in love with her. So that means those men that you see standing there with... Uh, oh, let me go back to that. There you see... Uh, okay, go to this one here. Uh, on the right-hand side, you see an image of uh, Josan standing against a palm tree in southern France the year before he met Zelda. And on the left, you see Zelda and René Silvey, one of the many men who fell in love with her this summer. So she wasn't only flirting with Josan, she was flirting with all of them. Char charismatic and powerful Josan, shown here on the right, possessed what the French call Aplomb. And a snapshot taken of him in his 20s shows that mix of elegance and cool reserve. Aware of the impression he is making, he leans nonchalantly against a palm tree, one leg bent slightly at the knee, left hand in pocket, the other holding back his jacket. He might have stepped from a fashion magazine, this Frenchman, and his unmistakable auteur mirrored Zelda's own tantalizing reserve. Nonchalant but keenly observant, he could handle any circumstance, was at ease with everybody and impressed by no one. This is Zelda writing, quote, the flying officer who looked like a Greek god was aloof, she wrote. He seemed not too content with the official purpose which had brought him there, and he was not casually available. 
end quote. Neither was Zelda, which made her particularly appealing to the young officer. As the French say, it was un coup de foudre, a flash of lightning at first glance. Once their gaze met, it was decided. She did not look away. Instantly and without artifice, the connection was made. He was prepared to love and she a willing accomplice. This is the beach at San Rafael and the site of the original Café de la Flotte on San Rafael's beach. One of the um, fun parts of being a biographer is that you do get to travel around all sorts of places and try to discover things that have been lost for a long time. And when my daughter, who's here tonight with me, was only maybe 10 or 11 years old, we went to southern France and took these pictures. I think she took these pictures, and I was able to use, actually, some of her illustrations in the book. So being a biographer can be a, little, a lot of fun. With the expectations sparks would fly, Fitzgerald propelled Zelda in Josanne's direction. The French pilots came to Villa Marie and lounged in the garden, speaking of Indochina and the fin de siècle poets who sought inspiration in human emotions. Josanne initially may have questioned the Fitzgerald's invitation into their circle since they represented a life more worldly than his own. Rich and free, he recalled, they brought into our little provincial circle brilliance, imagination, and familiarity with a Parisian and international world to which we had no access. Scott was three years older than Josanne and initially seemed worldly, but that impression didn't last, and the Frenchman quickly determined that Fitzgerald wasn't more sophisticated, just had more money. He soon dismissed him, telling Sarah Mayfield that he considered Scott, quote, a bit of an intellectual who seemed more concerned with commercial success, a proud, domineering man who was sometimes tender, but also sometimes cruel, end quote. Try as he might, the Frenchman did not understand how Fitzgerald, aside from his literary reputation, could have attracted Zelda. He observed that he drank too much and was preoccupied with status and money. Let's see. This is the, these are the merry-go-rounds in Nice, and there's one in San Rafael as well, where Josanne and Zelda often went just for fun. Scott usually worked until dinner time. Dinner was served around 7, and afterwards he and Zelda would drive into San Rafael where moonlight cast shadows over the plane trees by the harbor, and a band played waltzes in the pavilion near the merry-go-rounds. Sometimes they met the French officers at the Waterside Bistro, where Scott generally ordered two fingers, an inch and a half of straight gin in a bar glass, and Zelda a stinger, brandy, and creme de menthe. That Josanne spoke little English and Zelda only rudimentary French seemed irrelevant. They communicated without fully understanding each other's words. The pilot had no difficulty expressing emotions <clears throat> through the cadence of his voice and the timing of his breaths. And his limited vocabulary may even have accentuated 
the affair. Open to her presence, he intuited her feelings. That's Josanne on the far right, standing in front of the air hangar, having just come out of his plane. On the glamour scale during the 1920s, being a test pilot, which is what he was, was right up there. And among the aviators in his squadron, Josanne was the best. Making life and death decisions was customary for him. From youth, he had learned to confront danger and had no need to manufacture excitement. Every time he climbed into a cockpit, he faced threats more substantial than anything the Fitzgeralds might envision. With unreliable instruments and few navigational aids, flying at 8,000 feet against a steady stream of cold air, only marginally protected against the elements, was beyond the realm of ordinary men. In his leather cap and goggles, a white scarf tied across his neck to prevent chafing, Josanne seemed larger than life. And if Zelda had any reservations about getting involved, they were quickly put aside. Josanne flirted as naturally as others breathed and approached Zelda with complete confidence. She was the first American woman he had met and different from French girls, soft where they were hard, liberated, and more accessible. Her vitality was a breath of fresh air, yet mystery enveloped her, and she appeared elusive and sensual. Her eyes were full of secrets, and as Scott once observed, quote, her body was so assertively adequate that someone once remarked she always looked as if she had nothing on under her dress and often she didn't. There was a clean scent about Josanne also that she loved. Something to do with his starched white uniform. Maybe, she thought, they added a certain bouquet to the misting water while ironing. That fresh smell lingered, and she couldn't force it from her mind, nor did she want to. She was intoxicated by the scent. With heightened expectation, she made excuses to drive into San Rafael, to look for him by the harbor alone or with the daughter's na nanny. And they would sometimes meet at this movie theater, which is now a monoprix department store. But when you go there and you do the research on your biographer and you go to the historical society, they tell you, well, you know, the original theater is now where that monoprix store is. And so then you go in and you try to take pictures of the inside. So you have the monoprix store, what was the theater, and then you have the plane trees by the harbor in San Rafael. The directness of Josanne's pursuit was uber-masculine. We, now we know the word uber very easily. But the idea of being uber-masculine is like ultra, ultra-masculine. And that Zelda was married only added to her allure. It was accepted that a young officer unprepared to wed would take a mistress. Wives held particular appeal, rivaling single women by offering pleasure without responsibility. Already chosen by another, a wife could return to her husband, no strings attached. 
Shazan was exactly the type of man about whom Zelda had long fantasized. Comfortable commanding and being commanded, ordinary battles didn't interest him, only those demanding skill and imagination. The, the, the cover of Zelda's first novel, Save Me the Wolves, and Josanne at the time of his marriage, three years after he met Zelda to Lucien Grus Galliani. By early July 24th, Scott had suspicions about the affair, and in his ledger places its climax on July 13th, 1924, calling it, quote, the big crisis. On that day, Zelda confessed her love and asked for a divorce. There are several versions as to how Scott responded. One suggests that he made a formal complaint to Josiane's commanding officer and demanded that, that the lieutenant be uh, reassigned. Another says that he engaged him in a duel. Another that he engaged him in a shooting match. Each fired a shot, one missed. There are many stories about what happened. But what happened basically was that Josanne left and that Zelda was left alone and locked into her villa. And what that means is that in... Um, that is Josanne on the left with the woman he ultimately married and Ernest Hemingway on the right. Um, from July 13th, the day of the crisis, until late August when some house guests arrived, Zelda was confined to her room in Villa Marie. And as she writes, it was expedient unexpected and miserable that she should be in love. Jano told her husband that she loved the French officer and her husband locked her in the villa. Interior doors in French villas locked from inside and out. So what probably happened is that Scott put Zelda in the bedroom and just took the key and then locked the door from the outside. During their courtship, he repeatedly had told her that he understood why princesses were locked in towers. And now, in some bizarre manifestation of that fantasy, he was playing out what he always anticipated might happen. She would have to wait for Josanne to claim her if he would, but that was not going to happen. Zelda had misinterpreted Josanne's intentions, but how did she get it so wrong? Well, language and culture played a part. Let me just um, go a little bit further here so we have time. Okay, so I want to go to this so we leave time for enough questions and answers here. So let me end on this, and then I'll use some of my other material, actually, when you answer questions or post them. So uh, she gets locked in her room, and then ultimately Josanne gets reassigned, and Fitzgerald is very close friends at that time with Ernest Hemingway, and he tells Hemingway what's happened, and what he says is something is irrevocable now. Something has changed, and... Uh, First of all, 
he says he can no longer sexually satisfy Zelda, and that is a big problem. And then he says he just feels that the marriage is forever broken, that there is a crack in it that is not going to fissure, that is not going to be, not going to be fixed, it's not going to be solved. In 1925, one year after the affair, Scott told Ernest Hemingway about Zelda's betrayal. And this is Ernest Hemingway speaking. Here's what he says. The first version that Scott told me of Zelda and a French naval aviator falling in love with her was truly a sad story. And I believe it was a true story. Later, Scott told me many, many, many other versions of it as though trying them out for use in a novel. But none was as sad as that first one. And I always believed the first one, although any of them might have been true. They were better told each time, but they never hurt you the same way the first one did. Scott wanted me to know and to understand and to appreciate what it was that had happened in San Rafael. And I saw it so clearly that I could see the single-seater seaplane buzzing the diving raft and the darkly tanned face of the boy who was in love with Zelda. I could not ask Scott the question, though, that was in my mind then, of how, if this story was true, and if it had all happened, how could Scott have slept each night in the same bed with Zelda? How could he have forgiven her? And the answer was, of course, that he couldn't. So, what my book is about is how this pivotal affair, which was only five weeks. Now, five weeks is from now until Christmas Day. That's it. Five weeks is not very long. So the question is, how could a five-week affair irrevocably change everything in the Fitzgerald's lives? They're, she's 24 then. It changes it forever. And besides that, it influences everything that Fitzgerald writes from that point on. Certainly everything that Zelda writes as well. But it, it gets played out in five or six short stories, which I, I write about in the book. And it gets played out in Tender is the Night. And it gets played out in all of it, all of um, it just gets played out over and over again as if Fitzgerald is trying to work it out a different way than it actually occurred. So that is the premise. That's the premise of the book. And that it, it I didn't really plan to write this book. I was, as I mentioned, working on a World War II survival story of five young girls who survived the war in the woods, and I put it aside, thinking I could get this written in maybe two years or three years, and now it's nine years later.
nine years from start to finish. However, that's very common. If you ever read David McCullough writing, talking about his writing of biography, he, he always says it takes 10 years from start to finish from the time he's, you know, he decides he's going to write about John Adams rather than James Madison. It's like 10 years. So you don't have that long to live. So you figure you're spending a decade of your life on each one of these subjects. It does take a long time. So I'm not sure how I feel about this. I look back on this now and think, should I have, should I have spent the past decade doing this? Or should I have, you know, written two different other books in the process? But I think that the topic was so important. I think that the influence on their life and their work, most importantly on their work, was so important that I had the information, no one else had it, and so I was going to write about it. So that's it. Thank you so much for coming.